Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, today, as you can probably tell by the banners on the side walls, we are starting a new series in the New Testament known as the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter of the Corinthians uh, to the Corinthians. Uh, and we're going to be in this series, we're calling it A Better Way. And that really actually comes from a phrase that Paul uses at the end of chapter 12, where he says, and now I will show you a most excellent way. I'll show you a better way uh, to go about that. And so we're going to look at this better way, uh, how to be God's people in this world. And uh, so as we do that, let me just say that before I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, we're not going to start there. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll explain in just a minute. We're actually going to start, the first half of this message is going to be background. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm first getting acquainted with a new book in the Bible or a letter in the New Testament, I just, it helps so much to know some of the story, the backstory. So we're going to do that first, the first half today. And then the second half, we're going to actually look at the first nine verses. Uh, So let me just set it up this way. Um, If you're following along in the notes, this letter from Paul lets us peek inside a first century church. This letter from Paul lets us peek inside a first century church. Someone has said, it's like Paul lifts off the roof of this church gathering and lets us see what's really going on inside. And one of the reasons why I appreciate this letter is because what we find out is that these people are a lot like us. That sometimes when it seems like 2,000 miles away, like we're more sophisticated, we know more stuff, they didn't have the same challenges, it's just not true. But also, here's another reason if you're following along in the notes. The church in Corinth is by no means a perfect church. The church in Corinth is by no means a perfect church. It's, it's not, in fact, it's not healthy when this letter is sent to them. And the reason I bring this up is because Cherry Hills is by no means a perfect church. But God is still working in our church. One of the discoveries I had to make as a young boy, as a pastor's kid, when I had a front row seat to a local church, is that my expectations were not necessarily that it should be perfect, but close. So like when I saw everyday problems or warts and all and that kind of thing, I found myself going, I don't know if I'm interested in the church. But the truth is, is that God loves this church and he works through churches. In fact, sometimes people say, what was the New Testament church like? It'd probably be more accurate to say, what were the New Testament churches like? They were all part of a capital C church, but they were local expressions and outposts of Christ's work in the world. And so when you think about it not being a perfect church, I've I've heard this story, you've probably heard it too. Dr. Harry Ironside uh, used to be the pastor at Moody Memorial Church. And one day he had a lady come up to him and say, uh, I'm looking for the perfect church, and when I find it, I'm going to join it. And he said, well, uh, you're probably not going to find it, but if you do ever find it and you join it, it'll no longer be a perfect church. (laughs) And he wasn't trying to be critical. He was saying what's true of all this, that it's made up of human beings touched by God that are still in process. And therefore, there's a messiness about it. And 1 Corinthians is going to show us that. Now, what I want to do is invite you, if you would, to turn to Acts 
It's actually two books before 1 Corinthians. Turn to Acts chapter 18. Again, if you're getting used to your Bible, Acts is in the last fourth of your Bible. And uh, you can find it on page 900 if you want to use the black Bible. Hopefully there's one in the seat rack near you. If you pull that black Bible out, it's on page 900, Acts 18. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. And in this series, you'll notice that we've provided, speaking of background, uh, hopefully on your chair, there was one of these bifolds. And it has inside a lot of the history and some uh, basic background. Also on top of it is a sticker. And uh, that sticker is if you want to use it, uh, some of us uh, use those stickers just to remind us where we've been. I'll, I'll just show you the flyleaf of my Bible. You probably can't see it, but I've just put these different stickers from our series just to remember where we've been. And if you want to use it like that, feel free. Or maybe there's another place you might use it. If not, we just wanted you to at least have it because we're going to be in this series a big part of 2018. It's 16 chapters. We're going to make our way through with a break in the summer. So as we look at this today, would you look at Acts 18 with me? And I'm going to read it to you because this is how things got started uh, there in uh, Corinth. And by the way, did you know that Corinth is an actual city? You can actually go there today. It's three miles away from where it used to be in Paul's day. Uh, Been rebuilt a couple times. Uh, And uh, so let me read. After this, Paul left Athens. Now, again, I don't know how much you know about geography, but Athens is also part of Greece, and it's 50 miles to the east of Corinth. So he's over uh, over east, and now he goes 50 miles to the west to this town called Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy. Italy is to the west across the body of water with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. He was the emperor at the time Claudius was. So these friends, Priscilla and Aquila, become friends for life, for the rest of his life. He meets them in Corinth. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, He reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy, these were his co-workers, came from Macedonia, which was up north of Corinth, came from Macedonia, uh, it says that Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, we've said this many times in our church, but a Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish, right? And that's us, okay? We're Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. 
But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Poor Sosthenes. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. And eventually we read that he goes to Syria and eventually winds up in Ephesus sometime later where he spends three years. And that's where the letter to the Corinthians is sent from, is Ephesus. Now, I bring all this up because it's important for us to unpack the background and then look at the first nine verses. But why don't we pray and let's ask God to be our teacher this whole series long, okay? Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to know you? Would you help us to grow in a relationship with you like you did the Corinthians? And would you use this letter to be part of it. And we just thank you that we have the privilege to have a copy of this in these days that you've preserved it. In your name we pray, amen. Now, uh, I was thinking, I I forgot to say this, uh, but I want to make sure I mention it. Some of you are wanting to get a better idea of this book, and the only way you can do that sometimes is by reading it yourself and then asking questions and learning more. There's a Bible app. I don't think I already mentioned this, did I? There's a Bible app for your phone. Uh, I think also for your computer or tablet. But it's called Version Bible app. This is the one I use most of the time. And uh, again, if you uh, install that on your phone or tablet, then one of the features I love about it is that it has a listening feature. So what I've done in preparation for this series is I've read 1 Corinthians through a couple times, and then I've listened to it as well. And if you want to listen, some of you say, you know, when I exercise or drive or when I have some free time, it's a way that I can get this more into my life. And uh, what I've found is that if you're able, you can listen to this unbelievable British voice read 1 Corinthians, and it really goes a lot easier, okay? So just be aware of that. Now, here's what I want you to see as we get introduced to 1 Corinthians. This time in history was 50 AD, about approximately 17 years after Jesus' crucifixion. So some people, by the way, they question the New Testament and the Bible. Did you know that the letter to the Galatian church was written about 15 years after Jesus died? We're not talking about long periods of time. People were still around that could say that's not true, that's true, stuff like that. The Corinthian letter was probably written about 22 letters, 22 years after uh, Jesus uh, came. And so just know that this was still very current. Many people were still alive and this was spreading throughout the ancient world. But in 50 AD, Corinth's a big thriving port city in southern Greece. Corinth's a big thriving port city in southern Greece. Can we start the maps this time? I want to show this map here just to give you some idea, okay? So Paul, this is his second of three missionary journeys where he travels thousands of miles. It wasn't easy traveling either. He comes down from Macedonia. Remember, it says that Silas and Timothy eventually joined him coming down from Macedonia in the north. And then we see Athens here, which you see Greece. And you see how Greece is part uh, on the right, but also Corinth is too. It's a big part of Greece. So there's this little narrow piece of land called an isthmus. Really, it's like a little neck there that connects Athens and Corinth. They're 50 miles away. And uh, here's another map. You can see that on both sides of that isthmus are seaports called Lechiam and Sencre. 
And um, Corinth is part of that whole area. Now, let me just read a little history to you about this. Corinth stood on a narrow isthmus only four miles across, linking the southern part of Greece with the rest of the country and countries to the north. In this important position, it inevitably became a prosperous center of trade and commerce. By land, everyone came through Corinth. By sea, sailors usually chose to use Lechaeum and Sencrae, the two seaports flanking Corinth at either end of the isthmus, rather than circumnavigating the dangerous waters of Cape Malia at the southern tip of Greece, which would have meant a distance of over 200 miles, and it was also dangerous. For large ships, it was a matter of unloading at one port and having the cargo carried by porters to the other to be re-embarked on another ship. Can you picture that? Small ships could be placed on rollers and dragged across the isthmus to be relaunched on the other side. Nero, the emperor of Rome from AD 40 to 66, actually made an abortive attempt to build a canal across the isthmus. The Corinth Canal was completed only in 1893. Like most seaports, Corinth became prosperous and licentious, so much that the Greeks had a word for leading a life of debauchery to live like a Corinthian. Homer, the ancient poet, talks of wealthy Corinth And it had military importance. It actually was where the first Greek battleships were built there in Corinth. They had the Isthmian Games as well. And let me just tell you a little bit about that. Uh, The city had been destroyed 200 years before Paul shows up by Rome. But then 100 years after that, Julius Caesar decided to recolonize Rome, make it a Roman city, and he started it up again. That was about 95 years before Paul shows up. So by the time Paul shows up, it is vibrant. A lot's going on. And along with uh, what I already read to you, know this, that upon regaining financial stability, Corinth began to host the Isthmian Games. Isthmus, Isthmian Games. Do you remember where the original Olympics started? The Olympic Games? Athens. So they were, it's kind of competition between whose games are better. And then notice that which the Greeks and Romans from all over the empire, including women, competed not only in athletics, but also in drama, music, and oratory. The Isthmian contests were held every two years and lasted several days, being com- uh, conducted in Corinth's huge stadium as well as in its two theaters, one outdoors that seated 18,000 people and another indoors that held 3,000. These games were not only popular, but also known for their extravagance and licentiousness. The games, of course, brought tourism. Now, there was another thing about the city that you could look out in the distance and see what was called the Acrocorinth that was 1,900 feet tall. It was a hill. And on top of that hill was built a temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, of fertility, of lust. And so she had 1,000 prostitutes uh, that served her that would, the way that you worshiped Aphrodite, and this is what was so attractive to sailors, was is that you engaged in sexual intercourse with those prostitutes in order to become more fertile, more powerful. There was all kinds of pagan things. So let me just give you the next background here, is that known for its diversity, I mean, there were people that came from all different countries of the world, Jews and Greeks, and people of all different kinds of backgrounds, known for its diversity, temples, games, the Isthmian games, bronze, and immorality. 
So the temples, let me just show you some pictures here. By the way, we think we are so slick. We think we're so sophisticated. Uh, when, the when the archaeologists began excavating this in the 1890s, they've been able to find a lot of stuff. Just imagine the roads and all the things you would see when you walked into a city like this. And then here are just the, the remains. After this many years, that's Apollo, the temple to Apollo, uh, which was more of a male beauty god. And then this was uh, the temple to Aphrodite that I just read about on top of the Acro Corinth. Now, there was also, some of you are involved in medicine, and you know that Asclepius... Uh, is the symbol still used on the medicine. Uh, that was the god of healing. They had a temple to Asclepius. They also had a god to Poseidon. Some of us heard of Poseidon adventure and all the things on the seas, god of the sea. So there was all this. You can imagine walking into this city. Now, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that when Paul walks in to the city, he had just been in Athens, and that had been a challenging thing because he had stood on Mars Hill with all kinds of intellectual people and reasoned with them about Jesus. And so he's, he's also been up in Macedonia where he's had all kinds of conflict that he's had to deal with. And now he comes down into Corinth. And the Bible says is that when I came to you, he says, I came to you with fear and trembling. I came to you very weak. I came to you knees knocking. I got into the city and I saw. It was the, one of the third largest cities in the ancient world. So you think of Los Angeles or New York City, but also because of its immorality, think of Las Vegas. Think about the fact that where it was is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know, that idea of now you can be self-indulgent, cast off all restraint. Immorality is open game here. And that's how Corinth, what it was known for, live like a Corinthian. That was a phrase on people's minds. So bronze, by the way, was uh, produced there. It was called Corinthian bronze, and it had appearance of like gold. They also produced a terracotta pottery that was really exported around the world. So there was this sophistication that we can only imagine sometimes in our minds. Instead of seeing churches everywhere, there were temples that were majestic everywhere, and they knew they were in a city where, pick your God, there had never been a Christian church in this city. No one had heard of Jesus. And Paul walks in to this city. Amazing. Notice the next thing is that Paul plants a church here during an 18-month stay. Paul plants a church here during an 18-month stay. Remember it said in chapter 18 of Acts that uh, he was there for a year and a half. I don't know what you do in a year and a half, but Paul saw God do some amazing things. And, he, and notice this, that as he teaches, many believe in Jesus and are baptized. That's what one of the verses said. Many believed and were baptized. It also, Jesus in the vision said, I have many people in this city. So this wasn't a tiny little thing that would happen in a corner. People were saying, have you heard about Jesus? Jesus has changed my life. And people started going, what's happening in Corinth? Most unlikely place, but it's happening. So after that time, notice that after Paul leaves, after that year and a half, the church eventually grows proud and loses its way. The church eventually grows proud and loses its way. One of the things I love about our banners is that we have the compass there. And it reminds us that there's a true north. And they had gotten away from true north. They no longer were living the way that it was meant, they were meant to be as the church of God in the city of Corinth. And so one of the reasons this letter is written is that Paul is writing to not only answer questions that they had about the Christian life, but writing to correct 
some of the ways that they lost their way. And so uh, it's just helpful to know this because when you read it, you're going to see what some of the problems. Next week, Steve's going to show us that one of the problems was is that there were divisions in the church and that people were jockeying for position or being proud about who their leader was and all that. But we'll look at that next week. Now notice one more thing, and this is our series sentence, is that Paul shows a better way to live as God's people in this world. Paul is going to show a better way to live as God's people in this world. When they lost their way, he said, here's a better way. I'm calling you back to that. And so that's the the background. Again, I could share a lot more. But can you imagine, can you imagine, first of all, hearing a message about Jesus where he calls you to lose your life for his sake, to die to yourself and receive the gift and, and calling that he has for your life. When people heard that, either they had become so disenchanted with all that the world offered, or they had come to a place where they just knew God had a better way for them. And they were doing it, and they they believed and were baptized and began that journey with Jesus together in this city that I'm sure laughed at them and sometimes thought they were crazy. But Paul continues to hold up a better way to live as God's people in this world. So now let's look at verses 1, 1 through 9. And here's the question I want to ask before we read it together. So if you had planted this church, you are the pastor of this church, the founder of this church, and you start hearing, we're going to see in verse 10 that there was a lady named Chloe in her household that told Paul when he was in Ephesus, hey, there's some trouble back in Corinth. In chapter 16, we read about three guys, Stephanus and a couple other guys, that tell him more details. And then he says in chapter 7, here's my uh, answers to your letter that you wrote me. So he's, he's hearing all this. If you were going to write a letter to that church and you heard about all the trouble, wouldn't you be a little upset? Wouldn't you be a little discouraged? So how would you start that letter? This letter is from Paul to you. I'm ticked. <laughs> this letter is from Paul to you. You dummies. He could have started anyway, but I want you to watch his tone, and I want you to watch the way he starts this letter. It is amazing. So let's read together. Verse 2 is on the first gray box. Verse 9 is on the, in uh, the second gray box. I'll read verse 1 and then invite you to read verse 2. I'll read verses 3 through 8 and invite you to read verse 9. Let's look at this. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Now, before we read verse two, do you remember the guy that was getting beaten in front of the proconsul Gallio? His name was Sosthenes. Now, he may not have been the same guy. We don't know for sure. But if he was, that synagogue leader eventually trusted Christ and now is with Paul in Ephesus as he writes back to Corinth. And that's just a fascinating possibility. It also means he could have been the secretary that actually wrote this for Paul, as Paul dictated. We don't know, but he just mentions he's not doing this by himself. He's doing it as a team. So let's read verse 2 there in that that first gray box. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me pause for a second and tell you that we don't always get the benefit of this in the English language. Paul wrote this in Koine Greek, and in the Greek language there, when they greeted each other in Greece, they would say, Kyrene. It meant greetings. It meant hi. But he started, instead of saying Kyrene here, he says, Charis. 
grace. And then the, Hebrew, the Jewish people would often greet shalom, which means peace. So in Greek, he writes not karen, but charis. And in Greek, he uses the word for peace. And then he says, and here's the only place you can get this grace and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice what goes on in verse four. I always thank my God for you. Remember how we talked about how he could start the letter? He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He also will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, would you read verse nine with me? God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, let's look at Paul's opening words of this letter. Notice first that his approach is rather than confront them with what's wrong, the first thing he does after introducing himself and blessing them is this. Paul reviews who they are and what God's done for them. Paul reviews who they are and what God's done for them. He says, you know, before I talk about some of the things, let's just review. I was there in Corinth. You met the Lord. And he changed you. He changed you from a me to a we. He changed you from a self-indulgent person to a person now that wanted to glorify Jesus with your one and only life. I saw it. I saw the grace he gave you. And it was powerful. And that is a fact. Now, I don't know about you, but in this culture, there's a lot of talk about identity today. The world has all kinds of definitions for who we are and how to define ourselves. And maybe there's a person that's been influential in your life that's dictated to you what your identity is. But the Bible says is that when you meet Jesus, your whole identity changes forever. And therefore, they were now called the people of God, the church of God. And there was something about that. And uh, he, he says, I saw the grace given you. You've been enriched in every way. You've been gifted. He's touched your life. I know it. I know it. I saw it. I'm a witness. So he reviews that. I want to just ask you, do you ever get, do you ever lose your way? Do you ever lose your sense of identity? Do you ever get confused about that? I do. And so what anchors me when I start finding myself drifting or getting confused? Years ago, um, I, when I, on the days that I journal my prayers, sometimes in the Thanksgiving section of my prayers, I've used letters like this. And I'll just say these real quick. They may not make any sense to you, and you don't have to copy them all down. But let me just tell you, I write S. A-S-H-S-S-G-E-L-W-C-H-P-J-L-N. What does that mean? The first thing is, is that I just remember, he saved me. I'm saved. It's a done deal. He did it by his grace. A, he adopted me. I didn't, I didn't deserve to belong to his family based on what I had done, my track record, but he st still decided in love to adopt me into his family. What a privilege. S, not only did he save me, but he is now in the business of sanctifying me, of making me holy, of making me more like him. Sanctification, HS, he's given me his Holy Spirit. T, 
to live in me, the same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus here on earth. Now, as a gift, he is the one who lives in me. SG, the Holy Spirit not only came into my life, but he brought spiritual gifts. We teach about this in the network class. And my spiritual gifts of encouragement, teaching, leadership, wisdom, and pastoring. Then I think about the fact of EL, eternal life. Not only am I going to heaven, not only do I have a future forever that's going to be a lot longer than this life, but also I can know a quality of life, eternal life now. And then W, the word of God. What an anchor point. How many times the word of God brings me back to center line. And then CH, he put, made me part of the church. And this particular church is called Cherry Hills. And I am so thankful. I can't thank God enough for the privilege to be part of this church. I don't know how you feel, but that's me. And then PJLN. He gave me Patricia, Jeremy, Luke, and Natalie and their families. And I think of the relational blessings that God has given. And I just am filled with a sense of fresh identity and fresh gratitude. I don't know if that's helpful to you, but you may find a way that helps you review who you are and what God's done in your life. But notice, here's the word that stood out to me as I studied this. And this is what I want the rest of the message to be about. is the word called. Called. I, this is the title of the message, and then where, I, where do I get this? As I read this passage over and over again, I tried to notice things. And I noticed two things. First, I noticed that Jesus Christ, Jesus, is in every verse except one of these first nine verses. It's like Paul goes crazy. It's like he's going, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. And I'm thinking, wow. It's like, is he like just can't think of other words? Or what's going on? And what it reminds us is this, he's, he's saying in a way, everything in Corinth tells you it's not about Jesus. But you need to know that he's made it clear to us that from beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. You're going to stand before Jesus one day. He came to earth to redeem you. It's about his purpose and plan. And in pockets and corners all over the world, it is about people coming to know Jesus and what Jesus can do in their life. And he says, you know, even if they don't believe, even if they think that, you know, the Isthmian Games or the Super Bowl or something else is more important. No, no, no. They're going to find out all that stuff is eventually empty. It's about knowing Jesus. And the other thing I noticed was the word called. So in verse one, he says, Paul called to be an apostle. Then if you look at your, your first gray box, you'll see the word called and call in that box. You may even want to circle it. Sanctified in Christ Jesus to called and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then down in the second gray box, verse nine, do you see this? It kind of bookends, called at the beginning, called at the end. God is faithful who has called you. Now, what does called mean? Does it just mean time for dinner? No, there's a very, it's a very intentional thing. So when he says, you're called, you've been called. I've been called, you've been called. And people everywhere are calling on the name of the Lord. But remember, you've been called into fellowship with his son, Jesus. So called, if you're following along, means summoned, invited, named, entrusted. Summoned, invited, named, entrusted. It means uh, to be given an assignment, to be given a part to play. So he says, look, you were living in Corinth. You were doing everything Corinthians do. I came into that city with my knees knocking and I started telling you about God's plan that revolves around Jesus. And when you heard that, you didn't just hear about some scared human being talking to you. You heard God calling you to believe in his one and only son. 
Was it an audible voice? Not most of the time, but it was God working outside of you to speak inside of you across the ticker of your mind and thought patterns of your life. And you all of a sudden knew he was speaking fluent you and you could not shake it. You would try and forget about it. You would go get drunk. You would try and meet with a prostitute. You would try and do all these things in business. You would be part of all these clubs. You'd go to all these games. And you knew, you knew he was calling you. And as much as you can't explain it, you also can't shake it. And these Corinthians knew what he was talking about. And I just want to ask you a question. Can you point to a time when you know he called you. One of the things that happens when we hear the word called is we go, well, of course, he called Paul. It's possible. You know? He calls all pastors, missionaries, and extra credit Christians. <laughs> but he doesn't call ordinary people like me, does he? Oh, yes. Do you see that? He called you. He called you. And I will never get over that. And I'll never get over the fact he called me. I knew he was summoning me. I knew he was pulling me, drawing me. It changed my whole life, Paul says, and it changed yours. Notice why God calls. It's not just an accident. Here's a couple lines. Called to be his holy people in partnership with his son. That word fellowship is koinonia. It means to share, to partner with. It's called to be as holy people. Now, when we hear holy nowadays, we think, you know, don't wear nail polish, don't go to certain places and all that. And I don't want to say that being holy doesn't involve some morality. It's a high call. But holy has a lot more to do with being set apart, to be separated from your old ways, to live a new way. It's actually something that's powerful. It's actually something that's very elevating. It's actually something that's very hope-filled. He's called you to be salt and light in this decaying world, to bring hope, to bring a better way. He's called you. Then notice this, that Paul thanks God for them and God's grace in Jesus in them. So again, I don't know if you know of somebody right now that's lost their way, that you know in the past God's worked in their life. How do you approach them? You approach them by going, lost your way. That's my temptation. I've seen myself do this in arrogance and pride. Here's a better way. God's called you. And I know you're compromising right now. And I know you're tempted to keep going the road you're going. He called you. He did a gracious work in your life. I saw it. I know it. Let it bring you back. Let it take you to true north. It's better. He called you. You've seen his work in your life. Notice that God's call, he says in verses four through eight, has enriched, gifted, and will keep them. God's call has enriched, gifted, and will keep them. He said, look, here's the thing about a call. It equips you. It provides everything you need to live out that call. So he's enriched the way you think now. He's enriched the way you talk now. He's enriched 
the way you see now. He's gifted you with divine capabilities to serve in this world that you never imagined before. You just thought you had certain abilities. Now he's given you divine capabilities to serve, not only in the body of Christ, but to serve people who are still on the way. And then he says, and here's the really good news. He is so committed to you, not only to resource you, he will keep you to the end as you wait for Jesus' second appearing. What hope. Someone has said, Paul, by doing this in the first nine verses, put a floor under their feet so they could stand strong again. He anchored them by reminding them who they are and what God's done for them. And with the rest of my earthly life, that's what I want to do too. If I can be the kind of pastor, along with the others, that teach in this church, in such a way, I pray that he will empower me to live out my calling, which is to remind you that you've been called. And some of you are here saying, I've not been called. Then here's the good news. It's not too late. If you sense any tug in your heart, that's him calling you. And here's how you respond. Call on the name of the Lord. And the Bible says you will be saved and you will be entered into this whole new life. So I'm going to give you one more line, and then I'm going to, you can put your notes away, and I'll talk to you for a while, okay? Here's the question. How can I lean into and keep coming back to God's call? How can I lean into and keep coming back to God's call? I would love hearing people's stories. I love hearing how God's worked in so many of your lives. A few weeks ago when I got to baptize a couple people, I loved hearing how they knew they were called by Jesus Christ and they knew it was all grace. It was God's riches at Christ's expense for them. It was undeserved favor. It was unbelievable, amazing grace. But when I hear those stories, um, I'm just reminded that it's because of that call that now the way they spend the rest of their life here on earth is different. It means like, how do you live in Corinth without leaving Corinth? How do you live a called out life? By the way, the word called isn't only here in those explicit ways. Did you know that when it says to the church of God in Corinth, that word is ekklesia. So the word called in Greek is kaleo, sounds almost like kaleo. And then the word kletos means called. So when Jesus, the night before he was crucified, was speaking to his disciples and he says, I'm going to send you a comforter, a helper, an advocate who's going to help you live the Christian life. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. You know the word he used? Parakletos. One who's called alongside of to help you be kletos. And then he said that along with that, so the word ekklesia is the word in Greek for gathering or assembly. It was a secular term. The Christians used it for a word for the church. It means company of the called out ones, called out of the world to still live in the world differently in the world. So again, this whole sense. So when I look back on my story, when I was 15 years old, I knew, I knew I didn't know Jesus. I knew he'd called my parents. I knew he'd called my grandparents. I knew he'd called my youth leaders. I knew he'd called some of my classmates, but I did not know he called me. I was living on the coattails of other people. 
And one night in total exasperation in my bed, I just said, God, if you want me to live the Christian life, you're going to have to open my eyes. You're going to have to change me. And a month later, I don't know how to explain it. I'd never heard an audible voice. I knew God was calling me. And when he called me, he was equipping me for things I didn't even understand yet. At 17, he called me back to him because I lost my way. At 23, he called me to be a youth pastor in a town called Springfield, Cherry Hills. At 28, he called me to be a pastor out in western Iowa. At 37, he called me back to Springfield to be one of the pastors at Cherry Hills. And I could go on and on and on. But here's the thing. Every time I felt like quitting, every time I began to wander, it was his call that brought me back. It was his call that helped me keep going and not be totally defeated. It was his call. And so the story I've been thinking about is I think I've told you this before. One day in one of my less than stellar parenting moments, I was standing in the kitchen with our daughter and we tried to teach all three of our kids that it's about character. But one day she had an attitude that was driving me insane. And fortunately, I was exemplifying a similar attitude as an adult back to her. It was beautiful. You would have loved it. You would have thought, Jesus is definitely in the room. No, you would not. <laughs> and so I was I, just in total impatience. I finally said, Natalie! And it was that loud, too. And it was, it was not like Jesus. And I was about to say, you blew it again, or you have a terrible attitude, or you, whatever you want to put in there. I don't even know exactly. I was just so upset that I was going to talk down to her. I was going to call her in a different way than Jesus wanted me to call her. But while I paused, after I said, Natalie, what came in my mouth, I think was an accident, but now I realize it was God being gracious to me yet. I said, Natalie, you're better than that. You're better than that. And at least three or four times in the last few years, now that she's married an adult in the working world, She said, Dad, that moment was life-changing for me because I knew that you were reminding me that God had something higher and I had begun to aim lower. And it brought me back to true north. I was telling a guy in this church this story this week and he said, you know, instead of calling this series a better way, we maybe should call it, you're better than that. Because what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, all throughout this letter, hey, this is how you're doing it right now. You're better than that. Here's what it looks like that God wants you to come back to. So I wish I could tell you as a pastor that I don't lose my way, that I don't wander, that I don't feel like quitting. But you need to know that even our staff, we need this series. Because we need to be reminded that for reasons only known to God because of his unbelievably generous grace and faithfulness. Many of us have been called. And we exist to invite others who have not yet been called because it's not just about us, but it's about people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord and experience the same grace and the same calling and the same faithfulness. And Cherry Hills, God loves you. He loves us. And he has a purpose for us. And it's not an easy call. It will require his resources. It will require his endurance. It will require his faithfulness. But he's committed to us. And he's called us to come alongside of us, 
to help us live out his calling in this world. And when the world sees it, they may mock, but they may also respond. And we exist in the hope of that. So I think about a friend I have right now who has stage four cancer. And we're praying regularly for his healing. But whatever happens to him, I know that in Jesus, he now has a purpose. He knows he's called, whether he's taking chemo or whether he's with friends or wherever he is, he's called to have a purpose to glorify God with his one and only life. One of the ladies I baptized a couple weeks ago, she got on a plane this Friday. She said after September when she was saved, she said, Jeff, when he called me, all I want to do now is talk about Jesus. Like what's happened to me? And she got on a plane Friday and she flew to Tanzania on a mission trip. And she's scared out of her wits like Paul was walking to Corinth, but she knows she's called. And she's going to bravely live that out. And I want to cheer her on, don't you? And I want to cheer people on. And I hope you have a sense of calling. So here's how I want to end. I wrote a declaration that's about eight eight short paragraphs long. It's a prayer that we could pray together as a church as we start this series. And as we remember that God has graciously called us. So would you uh, stand with me? And let's read this together on the screen. And if it's in your heart to do so, pray this prayer with me. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we are loved by you and called to be your holy people. You called us to come to you. And when we came, you declared us not guilty, filled us with Christ's goodness, gave us a right standing with you, and called us to your eternal glory in Christ. You've saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of your own purpose and grace. You are the one who called us to live in the grace of Christ. Yes, you saved us to be your people who are in the world, but not of the world. People who no longer live for themselves, but set apart to show and tell the good news of Jesus with our family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors, even if it means suffering. We humbly accept your call on our lives, knowing that you are faithful and will keep us to the end as we await Christ's return. When we become proud or lose our way, teach us to lean into and to keep coming back to your unshakable call on our lives. Thank you for showing us a better way to live as your people in this world. What a high call. What an honor. What a God you are. Do you mind staying standing as we are dismissed? And I want to remind you that we always have uh, brothers and sisters down front that would be glad to pray with you. If you have never called in the name of the Lord, maybe that's a decision he's asking you to make today and to humbly begin walking that way so you can live a called life. Maybe you're uh, still thinking about that and have questions. Please, we'd be glad to pray with you. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you because you've lost your way and you've lost your courage and you just need someone else to pray that back into you. I just invite you to always consider, don't be afraid to come down front. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of wisdom. So now, Lord, I want to pray for this dear church family and for our guests. Wherever someone is on the spiritual map today, we realize that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we pray that if we have been called, that we'll walk humbly with you and live out that calling 
that if we have not been called in this room, we pray we'll hunger for that and experience your gracious work in our lives too. But help us as a church family that now as we're sprinkled throughout the community, help us to live as your holy people this week. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.